Welcome everyone to Hysterecology Podcast. I am here, Elizabeth Beckman, with Andrea Hansen, and we are actually going to be talking about something a little more serious, not so funny, not funny at all, in fact, but uh, a conversation that we thought would be important to have after some recent events here in the Valley with a mental health professional. And I know, Andrea, you reached out to me first and had asked, had I heard about this? And you had a little bit of a closer connection, there being some overlap in the work that you do. But um, we thought it might be really valuable to have a conversation about suicide, about the cost of not getting support as mental health professionals, and just some other important things. What we hope to accomplish in this conversation is to have a discussion around mental health therapists, mental health professionals, whether they're psychiatrists, neuropsychologists, psychologists, social workers, mental health workers, having honest, real help from mental health professionals themselves. It is a very pervasive problem in our community as mental health professionals. 4% of mental health professionals have attempted suicide as opposed to 0.5% of the general population. Surveys showed that 59% of mental health professionals have thought about suicide. That's a hugely pervasive amount and it's really not talked about. And it not being talked about is part of what leads to the stigma that blocks that help and support from happening. And by stigma, I know we throw the word stigma around a lot. So I want to define stigma here. By stigma, I mean, when we make it so that if somebody is something or feels something or engages in something like sees a therapist, then they are defective, they're undesirable, they're unwanted, they're unwelcome, they're bad, they're unfixable. We create these labels, and some of that is external, but a lot of it becomes over time internalized, where we feel like, as mental health professionals, and I know this is, this is everyone in general as well, but as mental health professionals, if, if I need to see a mental health professional, if I'm not okay, then there's something just horrifically wrong with me. There's something very bad about me. So I can't need to see a therapist. Or if somebody finds out that I see a therapist, then everything's going to fall apart. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of a couple of podcasts ago when you were talking about, uh, for example, in the teen treatment industry, how someone you worked with having a history of going into and receiving treatment in that setting, how they were treated differently Mm -hmm. by the professionals they worked with. And this is as an adult, someone who was fully trained, were treated differently, like some, they were a, uh, like a detriment to the team, or somehow they were a, a weak link, versus realizing there's a value there in that personal experience. And I know for myself, as a mental health professional, I have 
family history, biological vulnerabilities towards depression, towards ADHD, towards anxiety. And I know myself, I have experienced mental health issues. I have experienced depression. I have experienced not wanting to be alive. And there were physiological reasons for that. There were mental health reasons for that. But I know for myself, I went probably a year because mine was triggered in my in my master's program because of how I was managing the stress. And I, I triggered Hashimoto's in my body and I just could not, I couldn't get right mentally and emotionally. I literally wanted to, makes me really emotional. I wanted to die for a couple of years. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want, but I kept going. Nobody would have known. Um, but there was this sense of what's wrong with me and what am I doing wrong? And I even went to go see a psychologist and he was great, but it just so happened for me, so much of what was going on for me was, was stemming from physiological issues, but I didn't know that because I wasn't working with the right professionals. And so I did, like I think so many other professionals, I sat with that guilt and suffered. And I was lucky where I, I pushed through, I continued doing all my work, I made it through kind of without a hitch, but, but this is a real problem and some people aren't so lucky. They have a bad day and they decide that's going to be the last day they're gonna choose into the suffering of being alive. And so this, I think, I know it touches me personally, I think, I think you have your experiences too and I think we've all known people who have, who have uh, not survived depression and suicidality. And so it's so important to talk about this um, because there's no shame around it. And yet there's so much stigma. Mm -hmm. And there is so much shame. We say there's no shame. But for you, and I so appreciate you sharing this personal experience, and I'm curious for you, as you were getting your PhD and experiencing suicidality, did any of you question, how can I help other people if I can't even get it together myself? Oh, 100%. There was all sorts of, and for me, by the time, luckily, I started. But when you hear conversations from counselor to counselor about, oh, well, you know, so-and-so's, they're saying they're suicidal, but they're just wanting attention or they're self-harming for attention or they're just borderline or whatever it is, just being very dismissive of clients' experiences. It's dismissive of our own human experiences as well. Surveys have shown that therapists experience, on average, more adverse childhood experiences than the average population. So therapists are already going into the field having had a rough go of it. And you hear these things tossed around by other therapists or by supervisors or even by any. So an example that is talked about by Stacy Friedenhall, and she is unfortunately one of the only therapists who have really come out and talked about her own experience with a suicide attempt and with feeling suicidal. And she speaks about going to a conference for suicidality. And this is all licensed professionals. They're gathering. This is a, they're going to talk about helping prevent suicide. And one of the professionals there posed the question that 
In suicide-related research, there are a lot of people attracted to help out with that research who have attempted suicide or have experienced suicidal thoughts. And the question was, how do we weed these people out? <laughs> Just really, a, you know, a heart drop, right? Yeah. Even in that question. But what's even more sad, I think, is that the discussion was all around answering that question. Nobody brought up the concept that maybe these people who have actually experienced suicidal thoughts, who have actually attempted suicide, could add something of incredible value to the conversation, of incredible value to the research, that they're not just defective people that we don't want to be around, that we don't want to be involved in things. So as therapists, as mental health professionals, from each other, we get this feeling of, I can't be a real human. Yeah. If people find me out, then I'm not going to be qualified. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get ousted. I'm not going to be taken seriously as a professional anymore. And we get that as well from our clients to an extent. But on the flip side of that, it also creates this feeling that Elizabeth and I have talked about before of that therapists aren't real people. So we get this idea that therapists, oh yeah, maybe you've read a book about this struggle. Maybe you've gone and gotten a master's degree or PhD and you've learned about people who struggle, but you haven't really struggled. And there is so much pressure to put on that air of, yeah, I haven't struggled. I haven't gone through anything. I'm perfectly fine. I'm the perfect human. But it creates this disconnect with clients where they don't see us as people. They don't see us as somebody who's experienced what they've experienced. And to an extent, yeah, we don't want counter-transference. We don't want to be projecting our own experience onto them. We don't want them to be over-identifying with us and assuming that we know everything that they're experiencing because we've gone through something similar. So there's a lot of nuances there, but it creates this void of self for the therapist. We can't really be ourselves among our peers. We can't really be ourselves among our clients. Who are we? Where are we? There's a lot of fear and confusion. Well, and when you brought that up to me, because uh, I as well, when you were talking about people having this mentality, mental health professionals of, oh, well, if people are drawn to this particular topic because of their personal experience, how do we get them out of here? Like they are a liability versus realizing most of us are in this field because of what we've experienced or what we've suffered through or what we've struggled through. It's the converse, I think, in many cases is often true, where we have actually been through something or many things that draw us towards this field of healing, not just to help other people heal, but often to heal ourselves, whether we realize it or not. And to think that, for example, DBT is a very well-known uh, theory and modality at this point, developed by none other than someone who initially was misdiagnosed, and she's open about this for anyone who knows about Marsha Linehan, but initially diagnosed with, uh, with schizophrenia, but later found to be suffering with borderline personality disorder, and who has developed from her experience and being hospitalized and suffering a modality that's one of the best recognized and one of the most helpful in helping other people suffering and trying to just help them develop the skills to be able to stabilize so that then maybe through other modalities they can go deeper they can heal some of the deeper wounds but 
as we're talking about, this idea of treating people with their own experiences as a liability further adds to this stigma because, well, oh, I have to pretend maybe I am drawn to it because I've, I've had these tendencies in the past, but do I have to hide that? Do I have to hide that from my colleagues? Do I have to pretend that I am this blank slate, that I am empty when truly we're full of experience? Um, it's really, it's, it's heartbreaking to me. And I think we've, we've talked about it plenty. Corporations, bigger corporations who aren't necessarily always worried about the health and why single mom, I mean, like single mom, I was not receiving financial support at all um, from, from their dad. And he's not a bad guy at all. I don't want to make it sound like he's a bad guy. It was just, you know, how things were at the time. So I was taking care of everything on my own. I also got into an abusive relationship, a physically abusive relationship, and also mentally abusive relationship during that time. And the imposter syndrome Mm. of, I can't figure out my life. I am not okay. And being shut down consistently, I was... I've always been a funny person. I've always been kind of the life of the party. And I don't think that that's like masking it all for me. I think it's a genuine part of my personality that I enjoy and I love. And it's what people grow accustomed to when they hang out with me. However, there are two instances that I am recalling from is very unstable. Your own personality assessment or mental health assessment is going to reflect that. It's going to mirror that because you are trying to adapt to them right so my personality assessment showed all kinds of levels of everything um and as we were discussing it of course it was anonymous as to whose was being shown but as we were discussing it in the class the comments that were made were cruel wow about about me about um how I was probably lying about everything because how could somebody be that distressed, right? Um, I was physically being beaten. I was in graduate school. I was raising kids. I was so stressed. I was not okay. But I was probably lying. Um, and that's what you hear all the time about clients too, who experience distress yeah. because they look at it and they say, oh, this, this doesn't make sense in my schema, in my experience of the world. So they're probably exaggerating. Um, partially, I think, because a lot of my symptoms were somatic, which makes sense when you experience long-term mm-hmm. distress. I had complex trauma from my childhood as well. Obviously, there were reasons that I was in an abusive relationship Um, so a lot of it was very, very, very pushed down. And so it makes it look like I'm just making it all up or I'm really just okay, but I'm, um, so those comments. And then I believe it was the next year, uh, things had gotten worse as far as, you know, just a few weeks before I started my third year of graduate school, um, the abusive relationship hit a peak where I lost my two front teeth. 
and had to go and get fake front teeth. And I was also starting my internship. So now I was waking up at 3.30 in the morning to get to the methadone clinic at 4 a.m. He was the cohort member who was the, oh, I'm, I'm happy, I'm going to help other people be happy. He looked at me multiple times and completely ignored me the entire time. He was facilitating the group. Mm-hmm. He was the one that was supposed to be asking people, you know, how we're doing, how can yeah. we support you today? What can we talk about? He could see that I wasn't okay. And he consistently ignored me. So messages throughout graduate school were that, you know, if you are not okay, you're going to be ousted. You're not going to be taken seriously. You're faking things. You're annoying us. So it's not different. It's not different in the mental health field and anywhere else when it comes to stigma. And it might even be worse. Yeah. Well, and I, I appreciate you sharing that. I, that's something we you hadn't shared any of that with me before and some kind of computing it in my mind. And I'm, I'm so sorry that you went through that. And it makes me think too, of, we had like a group therapy class in our master's program as well. And something similar where there was a lot going on in that group. One girl was struggling with infertility. I think someone was struggling with marital issues. I, at that point didn't know what was wrong with me, but like something was wrong and wrong is in I, my thyroid wasn't functioning and I was depressed and I didn't want to be alive and I wasn't managing my stress well. And I, it was, it was a challenge and, and the group therapy session where we were supposed to kind of be checking in, but also like practicing group therapy skills got like too real. And I remember the professor and looking back, I can see, she, I think she had things going on in her life and, you know, she didn't seem like she was able to manage it well, but it turned into this shaming of our entire cohort and like Mm -hmm. these serious meetings got called and someone in another cohort had done something as well they were concerned about but we all kind of got like vetted and shamed and it was a meeting there was a meeting too where I'd literally had and and I nothing I went through in my program was anywhere near what what you went through it but for me it was very much it was painful where I was just trying to cope through a lot of things I was trying to process and move past along with my current mental health issues in my program. And I'd had a moment where like I pointed out in front of our kind of school gathering that there were a couple of spelling errors on a piece of paper. And I one time had gotten passionate talking to a professor because she kind of carelessly said something to me that was triggering. And then didn't seem to know how to handle my trigger, which was to like more passionately defend myself. And so after we'd had this group therapy thing that was supposed to be helpful, but almost felt like it was used against us to act like something was wrong with all of us or some of us, I, I had all of these things kind of thrown into my face, which like further stigmatized just being able to be a human being like these moments where I just allowed myself to be like, Hey, there's spelling errors on this thing, you know, to actually have feelings and be a human being in a class and, and feel defensive, um, instead of masking so completely all the time that, um, that was actually a moment I came home to my husband after that meeting where there were benefits that I took away. I learned from it, but I also didn't feel like I could stand up for myself. And so I just kind of sat and felt like I was just um, the power imbalance was there. And 
And of course, now since I've heard there were a lot of pressures isomorphically coming down from the top of the school, down to these professors, down to us, and it was just this perfect storm of them not necessarily handling it well, and I have empathy for them, but I walked out of there like, I can't do this anymore. And my husband, I remember, he was like, I think you think the field is going to be like how school has been, and I think it's going to be different. And so don't, don't feel like totally given up on the field because it's, it's not going to be like how school is. And that gave me hope. But um, I was to a point where I'd literally, I, this is, I don't feel like it's oversharing. I think it's important to share this. I literally had a moment during that same time where I had told my husband, I said, if I died, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have to cover the cost of my education, right? Like, you wouldn't have to. Because I was in this place of like, if I if I didn't exist anymore, I don't want to burden him with that. Then he was like, and I mean, he he's my husband is the best. He's like, oh no, I would have to cover it. You need to stay alive. <laughs> but um, I um I was that low, but even in the program, there was kind of this lack of me really getting the support I needed, there was almost kind of, like you said, and this wasn't all instructors. I love all my instructors. I really do. But um, I felt not seen, like you mm -hmm. said, in that group by a fellow student. And probably most of that was I was very good at masking. Nobody ever has known something was up with me. And when I'm like, well, this is happening, they're like, what? Um, but I didn't, f I felt like, if I had been seen and it had been safe for me to be a human and have these struggles and talk. In my experience, when I started seeing a therapist, uh, I think it was my last year of graduate school, I started seeing, no, it was actually, it was uh, my second year, probably halfway through. And he was great. I loved him. He is fantastic. He is a psychodynamic therapist, which is definitely what I needed at the time uh, because in psychodynamic therapy, they they kind of help you elicit emotions and feel them in the moment. And I had blocked off so many emotions for so long. I could talk. I could do CBT all day long. I could talk about different perspectives. I could analyze everything. That was never an issue. So for so many therapists, it was you know, like, oh, well, what's the issue here? You seem to have it all figured out. Well, cool, but I don't feel okay at yeah. all. So with this psychodynamic therapist, he was able to help me feel emotions um, in, a, in a space that was safe, which was great. On the other hand, there were times that I wanted to bring up something deeper, like suicidality, like feeling like there was something deeper going on that I just couldn't get a handle on. And he pretty consistently brushed that aside. Mm -hmm. And I've wondered why. I've wondered why. And part of me is curious, is it because I am so quote-unquote high-functioning, right? As therapists, we want to see each other as okay because we want to be okay ourselves. Yeah. We don't want to think, oh, no, here's this unstable therapist, and what does that mean about the field? What does that mean about me? Yeah. It's so much fear. There, so there's so many tiny little moments throughout becoming a therapist that we see that it's not okay to be a human and then 
from the client end, right, we've talked about that they don't necessarily see us as humans, but there's some level of concern there as well where a client may feel, well, if my therapist can't even get it together, then what hope do I have to be able to get it together? And that's where I really feel like there has to be a shift in what it means to be healthy, what it means to be okay, and what it means to see a therapist and what it means to be a human who is a therapist. Therapists aren't wise sages that are above the everything, right? We're medical professionals who learn how to use professional skills and our personal life, of course, allows us to do that in a, in a better way. Similar to a doctor, a doctor learns medical skills and a lot of doctors, um, say a cancer doctor, they might have decided to specifically become a cancer doctor. And I know there's a specific name for that, but it's not coming to me right now. An oncologist. There Ah. we go. (laughs) They may have decided to become an oncologist because they had a personal experience with cancer, either with themselves or with someone close to them. And that makes them more empathetic. It makes them care more. However, it is not that personal experience that gave them the skills to treat the cancer. And if they get cancer themselves, they are not less of a cancer doctor. Resiliency. And I listened to a talk of his this morning talking about resiliency, and I'm running through my head knowing what happened with him um, as he's talking about his life and his work and his children. And to wonder, even for him being at this certain level of, of accomplishment and working at, at a college in their like, mental health and counseling like over that whole program, and he takes his own life because of stress, because of overwhelm. And I think about how many of us are building towards something catastrophic like that. If we're not openly talking about what's happening for us, if we're not openly getting support for our our mental health issues, I I think some of these cases we see, some of that might be playing into it. And how is a, how can we change that if we continue to posture, if we continue to, in our clinical meetings, have these games of who's the most professional, unhuman, <laughs> perfect individual, or, or stigmatizing each other mm-hmm. instead of supporting each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and how do we go about changing it? I think part of it is talking about it. Like today, I know I didn't plan to share the things that I've shared so far, and my hope is we can, we can try to help like break through that wall because I know for me if I hadn't have had my husband's support or other people who were safe that I finally started to talk to about what was going on with me I don't know if I would be here mm-hmm. I hadn't gotten so far as to plan or or to have a means and a way uh, of, of but I just know I was on that path of not wanting to be here and I couldn't undo it myself I had to have the help of my doctor I had to know that I, what am I doing here? People are going to find, find out. And I think the pressures of some of these institutions, like I wonder at this college where this guy was working, he was working there, this particular professional, he was called in to supervise because they'd had like 14 suicides of students at this college. And he calls in what happens, right? And I wonder if there wasn't some systemic pressure that was mm-hmm. contributing not only to the students to have these responses but him a lot of pressures from different angles in alpine and we could definitely talk about that more another time and i think 
there's always a balance when it comes to mental states between personal responsibility and community responsibility. So I don't, I don't think that as a community, we are one. I do think if we write it all off as a disease, as an illness that is purely within the person, that there's nothing anybody can do about, and their, their suicide or their behaviors or whatever happens is inevitable, then we are majorly failing each other. Yeah. And that's where you know, this conversation is so important as we talk about, we can talk about clients as the others and mm-hmm. that, oh, there's no shame in them getting therapy. There's no, there's no shame in suicidality. There's no shame in any of that. But until we start having conversations with each other like this that are real about ourselves yeah. and show by our actions, by example, what it looks like to work through it, to get help, then we're just we're just part of the problem yeah well and it's it makes me think of i have these a couple of awesome clients and they happen to be therapists as well and they've talked about in their own process of coming through through facing and acknowledging our own pain that's maybe where we become the most effective like you said to have empathy because it's easy it's easy as a clinician when you've never been on the other side of the chair, you've never faced your own stuff or seen a therapist to get support. It is so easy to take for granted what it is to be have been shamed by therapists because they were so mentally, emotionally engaged in certain really serious issues happening in their family. And the therapist had the luxury of going home and not facing any of those realities for themselves to kind of go, why are you worried? Why are you so worried about that? Mm-hmm. And I think when we address our own issues and we seek healing for them and we acknowledge them openly without shame, we, like you said, we become more whole. And just in the realm of being a therapist, I believe that makes us far more effective at what we do in all sides of that, whether it's empathy or in you know delivery of intervention or honoring our client's humanity. But as human beings, Mm-hmm. Um, at least last I heard and uh, for marriage and family therapists I, uh, last I heard I don't know if this is true I should have looked it up but I think our divorce rates are higher than the average other individual who's a non-marriage and family therapist and I look at that and I go something's going on here I have all yeah. the answers for everyone else's marriage but what about mine? This situation that just happened in Utah this tragedy is complicated and more complicated than suicide itself. And unfortunately, so many heinous acts towards other people. And in this conversation, we, our desire is to stay away from any kind of analysis as to why an individual might commit heinous acts, partially because it's so quick and easy for that to evolve, to devolve into gossip. And also because Without the person sitting here, we really can't analyze. We, we can only assume. So we hope, we hope to not get into analysis of why somebody or why somebody with power commits these types of heinous acts or why a therapist might. And we also, although it is very pervasive and very prevalent and a very real issue that the criminal justice systems and the licensing divisions do not respond to 
allegations of abuse in a way that is effective, that is not this discussion that we are having. What we hope to address specifically in this discussion is the component that can contribute to these types of behaviors or environment that stems directly from being a mental health professional and experiencing that stigma and that hollowness that comes from feeling like you can't be a real human. Whether it's with your clients, with your peers, with your supervisors, with your bosses, and even at home with your friends, with your spouse, where you have to hold this space of confidentiality for everything that you experience during the workday. And you have to show up as a parent, as an aunt, as an uncle, as a friend, and you have to be okay. So there's this this slicing off of yourself. No matter which chair you're sitting in, you're not allowed to be a whole human. That's specifically what we want to address here. And I know for me, as you're, as you're describing that, and I'm thinking of how I manage that and how that impacts my life. I know some of the residual impacts, even now, as I'm in such a different place than I was before and feel so much hope and excitement for the future. And um, I know for me, I notice a lack of patience. I know were, were these individuals experiencing any of that amongst other things? Um, I think too, probably the, the more, the more, uh, I'm trying to think of the word exposure someone gets. I think that maybe the more notoriety, maybe the more power or the more training, there's got to also be this high level of pressure, especially when I'm, uh, when I've had like difficult caseloads or difficult things happening in my life, I have to pay attention to slowing down and being careful because those things can bleed out onto our family members. And I'll notice I'm more short with people, Mm -hmm. whereas I can be just the infinite well of patience with my clients. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's so essential that we stop the faking and we stop the masking and we stop pretending we don't have real issues as clinicians because it only hurts us and it only hurts our family. I am curious, and I I hope to gain more insight into understanding how we can help prevent some of that. And like you said, there is absolutely personal responsibility, but we are so much also, in many ways, um, at the mercy of our societies and our communities. And if we're not made to feel safe, if we're not allowed to cry and share about our real experience without feeling somebody's kind of whisper. I don't know what's helped you, uh, Andrea, um, to manage that in your life, manage that human part of you and starting to actually let it breathe and have life versus caging it up as it feels like it you know, is, I've experienced. It is a struggle. It is. It's hard to, for all of the reasons that we've already talked about, um, and some that we've talked about in previous podcasts as well, where being a human and a therapist is hard, not just because of stigma, but also because of just real hard tax stuff of how many clients do you need to see a week in order to make a good enough income to be able to engage in the self-care that you're telling clients to engage in. Oh, for, for me, yeah, stress can come out sideways 
as being snippy, as being agitated. And of course, just like any power structure, things come out sideways at the least powerful person that you encounter that day, mm-hmm. right? So retail workers are typically, I don't, I don't explode at retail workers, but retail workers, I like to take the self-check out because I can tell it to fuck off. <laughs> you can explode it yourself. No, yeah. Just, yeah, it can be, it can tell me to, to put the, put the item in the bagging area. You put your fucking have, item have in the nice fucking, fucking bagging day. area. Fuck off. <laughs> um, but retail workers experience all the time aggression from people. Yeah. And unfortunately, part of that is because they are the bottom of the totem pole mm. that that person is going to interact with that day. And as crappy and as terrible as, as I feel about it, I have snapped at my kids because they're being kids, but I'm stressed, right? And of course, I apologize it and I do that repair work. Um, but I, I have found that within myself For me, there's a really great book by Dr. Alan Francis called Twilight of American Sanity. And in this, he talks about a lot of really great relevant things. But one of those things being, and I don't want to get into politics at all here, but specifically, he talks about that he wrote the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder in the DSM-IV. And it stayed the same since then. And we can go into diagnoses a different time and and politics another time. But the news outlets, several news outlets, reached out to him in 2016 asking him if Trump was. There are so many prevalent issues when it comes to mental health and because they might fit into a diagnostic category. Instead of taking responsibility as a community and saying, what are we doing about this prevalence that's happening here? Why are we experiencing in our country so many rates of so many prevalent issues that maybe other countries aren't, right? So those conversations where it's just, you know, how they are just ill in, yeah. in one way or another. And I've been seeing that in this case. There was a case also in um, 2022 of a therapist who was involved in some ritualistic abuse situations Mm -hmm. and it's so quick it's so easy i think we like a sense of well that's them not me or but it really blocks us from being able to have these conversations or somebody being able to go in and get help one of the really big uh, stigmas within the mental health field and one of the big populations that has those people need help They need to be able to feel support. So if we as mental health professionals, if we as a society are just hating on them and we're blocking them from getting the vital help that they need in order to hopefully not harm people. Well, and I know another population that um, a lot of professionals aren't equipped, mental health professionals, nor do they have a desire to work with, are people suffering with borderline. But I feel like as part of this conversation, part of allowing ourselves to be humans as therapists and and to have our own scruples and our own issues and limitations is to be able to say, hey, I may not ever, because of personal things I've seen my family go through, be able to have the sympathy and empathy or care to work with somebody who suffers with pedophilia. Someone else can do that. But you know what? I'm really well equipped. I know how to help people and I have the threshold to help people 
suffering with borderline personality disorder. And I think as therapists, part of the other toxic side of not being able to have our own issues or be human is not being able to say uh, in a more kind of professional, acceptable way, I don't want to or I don't like working with these particular populations. While people do that, in some settings, it's almost kind of like, what's wrong with you? As a good professional, you should be able to work with everybody. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Maybe uh, or less of a less capable of helping people. And I think all around, again, there are all of these all of these false perceptions that are internally perpetuated. I think they're utilized again by sometimes organizations um, to, and it doesn't just happen in our career. It happens for others. I just had a conversation with the nurse the other day and there's shaming that happens there too. When people just want to have a lunch, take a break, want to work in an environment where there's more balance, where they're not just run ragged every day. And so, um, I hope we can continue to have these types of conversations. I know I was so happy, sad, but I, happy that you had the the forethought to uh, say, hey, we need to have a conversation about this. Because it, while it's sad when events happen and, and we see people act out, hurt themselves, hurt others, I feel like those wider topics that we some of them we've talked about today we have these struggles too we suffer with depression suicidality we suffer with anxiety we have relationships problem too problems too as therapists and it's not helping anybody by pretending we don't and we are worth getting help for for us we are worthy as ourselves i hear often in fact, I've tried to have you know groups or retreats that are just for therapists, just for mental health providers. And the feedback I often get is, well, will there be training involved? Is this a CEU credit? As if our only value is for our clients. And if we are not doing something that we can translate to caring for our clients, it's not worth doing. Mm. But if we could get any message across to you all today, other therapists, other mental health providers, psychiatrists, neuropsychologists, whatever it is that you do, you are worthy all by yourself. Even if it doesn't benefit anybody else, you're worth getting help for. You get to have a life that you love because you deserve it, because you're worthy of it. Even if you make mistakes, right? Hold yourself in the same space that you hold for your clients. We have all had those clients who don't feel worthy, who feel like they have just made so many mistakes, taken so many wrong turns in their life that they couldn't possibly be lovable, that they might couldn't possibly be okay. And yet we sit there with them with the most profound love. Give yourself that space. And Elizabeth, I so appreciate you having this conversation with me and being so vulnerable and so open. And I'm, I'm glad that we had this conversation. I hope that it's beneficial. Uh, for Elizabeth and I, we both work with therapists as clients. And we both, we've talked about this before, and Elizabeth mentioned it earlier. It, it is possible to be a therapist and a human being. In fact, it's essential if we want to accomplish what I think most of us the well and the natural equipment of ourself 
is the most powerful thing that we can bring to the table, obviously honed and sharpened and in some cases refined with those therapy skills and education. But if we're leaving that out, we are leaving out an essential component to really helping other people. And also I think to having joy and fulfillment in the work. So thank you everyone for being a part of this conversation uh, through listening to what we have to say. We appreciate your time and we send love and support to you if you're struggling. Uh, get support if you need help, you deserve it.